Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It's located in our church Bibles on page 958. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Please be seated. Before we come to our study in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I have a couple of announcements. The first is that next Saturday, Alex Smith and uh, Sarah Gordon Goddard, daughter of Sonia Goddard, are getting married. Please uh, pray for them and for their wedding that God would be glorified in their union and in the preaching of the gospel. The second thing to say is you may have seen this on the table outside in the foyer, but there is a an opportunity for us to pray outside Planned Parenthood over these next uh, 40 days or so, 40 Days for Life. It's spring campaign, which we have committed ourselves on two days to, March the 12th and March 27th. It's looking for us simply to go and to stand and pray. No much more is required than that. Simply to pray that God would turn our country around, particularly in this regard. So I do commend that to you. As we come to this particular passage this morning, some of you have been waiting some time for this. It's taken uh, some time to get our ducks in a row and to organize a communion Sunday where we could actually preach on communion on the same week. So 
we're going to look at this passage this morning. If you would bow your heads, let's ask God to be at the center of our study. Father, we thank you that you are generous above all. And then in your generosity, you have given us your written word, that it is, as it describes itself to be, a fountain of life to us, honey to our souls. It is the only sure guide we have for faith and practice. It is, Lord, the repository of the great promises of the faith, the things which we cling to, the things that we hope for, the things that you need to be guided by. So, Father, would you speak to us by your spirit as we open your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Do you remember Linus from the Peanuts cartoon? I love mankind, Linus announced to Lucy and the world in 1959. It's people I can't stand. I was asking myself, what have we learned in the year of COVID? Well, one of the things, I don't think it's just introverts like me. I've heard it from extroverts as well. Humanity is okay, but people can be a real problem. People constantly in your space, crowding you, interrupting you under your feet, office at home, schoolroom in the kitchen, irritating you, frustrating you, distracting you. It's not that you can't stand some people, hopefully, but on certain days you feel like you could certainly stand having a little less of them. There again, maybe you're lonely and would give anything for your day to be interrupted. That's why I think it is a fitting time for us to read this letter, Corinthians. Paul, you remember, has been writing to the Corinthians about the nature of our community our unity together in Christ. He has opposed the Corinthian idea that some people are more worthy than others. And specifically in this passage, he confronts what has become a kind of, become a kind of uh, social distancing in the Lord's Supper, which we call communion. So we're going to look this morning as this passage shows us, I think, three serious mistakes which Paul points to in the practice of communion, really the Corinthian abuse of the sacrament of communion. So if you would look to it, there you can find it in your church Bibles or on your phone, as Renee has read it for us. The first mistake, to make communion solely about me and about my needs, verses 17 through 22. You know, in Greco-Roman society, if you were invited to a dinner party, it wouldn't be unusual to read on the invitation that you were invited for dessert and drinks, which sounded inclusive, but in that culture, it meant that you were not good enough to be invited to the whole meal. And of course, the majority would not be invited at all. Corinth was a society divided by class and by money. What did this come down to in church life? Well, the Corinthians, in order to protect the integrity of the Lord's Supper, have made a distinction between public worship, to which anyone can come, and communion, which typically would follow after the service over a meal at someone's private home. Now, not everything the Corinthians do is bad. This is actually quite a good idea. Our own Crown and Joy Church in Westover Hills does something very similar. But in Corinth, that meal has become the opportunity to express class and economic advantage, which is not good. It's not the way of the church. 
You can imagine, can't you, an invitation at the service. Of course you're invited, brother. Bring the whole family if you like, but please understand, I can't have everybody at church for dinner. Sylvia, the fishwife, Agnes, who goes about in rags, that blacksmith chap and Macaria, the temple prostitute. I mean, what would the neighbors say? The problem for the church is that these people would never mix in the world. So the rich people will bring their own food to the meal at communion, tender, fresh lobsters perhaps with select shellfish in summer vegetables, washed down with a bottle of Margot Red, while the poor, if they arrive a time from their jobs to keep up with the wealthy, will have but a few scraps of meat rescued from the dogs and a sip or two of moldy grape. And Paul says, that's not happening. That's not the way that we're going to do it. This is one bread, Paul says. And he means the shared participation in the cross, which has become the great leveler between the church. We have this in common, he says, in communion. We who are many are one body. For we all of us partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Romans 12, 15. Now, you might say that simply was an ancient world problem. There's no way that we could ever fall into the same trap. Well, not in the same way, perhaps, yes, but we still might be liable to it when we consider the community of the church, what holds us together, how we regard other people at church. After all, the Corinthians have simply ported the world's social patterns into their local worship. I remember hearing from friends who told me they were worshipping in a very well-known PCA church on the East Coast on a Sunday when they, they saw a beggar who had come in to, to spend a few minutes from the cold being then escorted out by the deacons. Now maybe there was a history for that and reasons for that, but it doesn't reflect well on a gospel church when it appears to be making economic decisions of that sort. For the Corinthians, the church was characterized by economic and social disparity and preferential treatment then accordingly. I have a friend who works at an upscale uh, sailing club in the UK, and for those people, for that set, he says, there are two kinds of people. There are the haves and the have yachts. <laughs> for Paul, right, by contrast, he describes the word here that we, we get our English word schism from. The church, he says, is literally at Corinth being torn by factions and parties and privileged groups who cannot agree with one another. The Corinthian way of associating with some and not others is such an assault on the fundamental idea of communion and the nature of the church that Paul says here in verse 17 that when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Notice Paul's not above using satire to make his point. Verse 19, ah, I can see why you need factions in worship. It's so that the truly genuine people, the approved people among you, the best people might stand out and be given proper respect. He's quite sharp with them. Verse 22, whoever's supper you think you're eating, I'm paraphrasing, it's not Christ's. Even the way you go about eating and drinking, it's a slap in the face of everything that communion is about. You don't wait for the poor to get there from their jobs to start the meal. And he presents this kind of Hogarthian image. One person is getting excessively drunk while his neighbor has nothing to eat or drink. 
in a communion service, in the meal they shared together as a church. We have our own versions of this, I think, in the ways in which we are taking on ill-advisedly our own world's values. Some at Stony Point are conservative, some moderate, some politically progressive. It's astonishing, actually, the breadth of opinion that there is in a church like ours. Some are for infant baptism, some are for immersion, something wearing masks is for safety, something is for no good reason at all. My guess is, if Paul was standing here, he'd say the church is not about finding people who are like you and then going to church with them. It's about going to church and finding people who, like you, are also seeking to follow Christ and submitting to him. And like it or not, God has a particularly eclectic sense of taste. He likes all kinds of people. The difference in our Christian unity is baked in. Insisting on anything less than that is idolatry. So communion is not solely about me and catering to my needs and the kind of people I think I should be with. Second mistake, as Paul presents it, to forget who communion points to. These are perhaps the most famous verses here, verses 23 through 25, which we recite at communion meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And again, the words that we know from communion. But Paul is giving the Corinthians not just, notice, words for liturgy or words for the ritual of the Lord's Supper. He's giving them history. He's giving them the practice that Christ instituted that night. He's saying, even with this narrative explanation, Paul is being noticed quite selective in what he's choosing to say. Strikingly, look at this, verse 23, he draws attention, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, to Judas who betrayed Jesus, to this betrayal at communion. It's a part of the story, but it's interesting as to why Paul should highlight it. What did Judas do to betray Jesus? Well, for 20 pieces of silver, for worldly prestige and advantage, for his own proud ideas as to what was right and best, that was his betrayal. I don't believe it's too much to say that Paul is laying down again a rather heavy comparison here. The Lord was betrayed even in the middle of the meal which exemplified his sacrifice and the love for each of his disciples by one of them who refused to participate in it and betray Jesus because he thought he was better than the rest. You can see the parallel that Paul is implying. And this is the astonishing fact about who God is. As John the Apostle describes him in 1 John 4, describing Jesus, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is an atoning sacrifice? Well, it's an offering given to make full payment for human sin against God. Even in pagan Greece, they knew, they knew it even in pagan religion, what atonement meant. And they would pay any price for it. Even in a post-religious society like ours, no one believes that we are the world are as it should be. All kinds of people are ready to admit, whether they call it sin or not, that something is desperately wrong with the world. 
And even then, in the face of our evident failure and the confusion and arrogance of our age, people yearn to be told who they are. They yearn for vindication. I think of those criminals, and this is not that unusual, who when they've been convicted of some crime by a jury will testify in their own defense saying something like, but I am a good person. But only God can set the value on a human life. Only God can tell you who you are. Only God can make you right with him. Only God can make you into who you were supposed to be. Left to ourselves, we drift back, don't we, to seeking our value by the standards of the world or by the comforts of our own fallen nature. But communion is the conscious reenactment of what Jesus did at the Last Supper, as if we were watching it again, as we recall his words and his promises, as if we were sitting there with the disciples, reclining there as they were cluelessly around that table, not even guessing yet at the significance of what Jesus was saying. So Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. His body, think about it, is the vessel of his existence among us. And its purpose is an atoning purpose to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you should have died. Who has his body been for? Well, he says, my body is for you, for the church, quite literally. I remember hearing John Stott preaching this a number of years ago on atonement. He imagined Christ on the cross and he said, here is God at Calvary saying, no one put me here. I put myself here. And why am I hanging here? I'm hanging here because of you. I'm hanging here for you. You cannot do this for yourself. So I must do it for you. And I want to. The language here is deliberately Hebrew. There is a a new covenant in his blood, he says. Words taken directly from Exodus when Moses spattered the people with the blood of the covenant. This time God himself will do it and reclaim his people by the shedding of his own blood. Why should we remember this fact over and over? Well, plainly because we forget it. We forget it, don't we? Not simply week by week, but hourly. We forget it unless persistently and joyfully we re-engage with his sacrifice, which he has made solely on our behalf for the glory of God. And in doing so, he has remade our relationship with God and transformed our relationship with each other. Why should Christians want to be known by his death? Because this is what we are about. It's a rare thing, Paul says in Romans 5, for one man to give his life for another, even if the latter be a good man. Yet the proof of God's amazing love is this, that it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. That is the nature of God. That is the news that we have to bring to people. It's not just a small religiously weird sect that finds itself in church and speaks with these strange words. This is the news for everyone that those who will receive the kingdom of God might receive it. 
This isn't a memorial, it's a present fact. Christ has done this. Christ is among us at communion by his Spirit. And in that, Christ shows us how to treat one another by the very act of communion as it was at the Last Supper. This is the rescue he's given us. This is the value that he's set upon us. And this is his example. Communion points to him, and in pointing to him, points also to the way we treat his people. And final mistake, to make a communion unworthy of Christ. Verses 27 to 32. In these last six verses, I want to focus just on one word, really, on one troubling adjective. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Literally will be responsible for the body and blood of the Lord. Ten years ago, uh, I was at a preaching conference in Connecticut. And this particular passage was being explained by the speaker. And as he read this verse to us and the warning that follows us, follows it here in verse 29 about eating and drinking judgment on oneself, I was immediately overcome with a sudden realization with a sense of dread. Hang on, I said to myself. I do this all the time. We do this. We administer communion. I felt perhaps a bit like a doctor or a nurse seeing COVID patients and knowing that the more people I see, the more likely I can catch the disease, except in my case, the disease was from me, my sin. And the times when I might contract its ill effects every time I lead people in communion. And I found myself in something of a panic. I thought I could commit horrendous sins. I do, even though I'm a preacher. There, there goes my job security. How perilous it must be for someone who continually leads others in communion and yet has themselves shown themselves not worthy. So I talked to the speaker. I met him in New York. He was a scholarly and Scottish gentleman from the Tron Church in Glasgow. And he comforted me, quoting 1 Peter 3. He said to me, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Your sins, he told me, past, present, and future, all of them have been paid for already at the cross of Christ the righteous for the unrighteous. He has borne your full penalty. I wonder, do we live in the good of that? Or do we find ourselves, our confidence, going up and down like some roller coaster during the day? What you could not do, he told me, what you will not be able to do, my dear brother, has been done for you finally and completely at the cross. And at long last, I felt, I don't know if you've experienced this, this deeply rooted misunderstanding in my own heart needed to be confronted, not just once, but many times. I find myself clinging proudly to what it is that I can do for God. And it will rob you, if you do that, of assurance. It will take from you your sense of salvation, the confidence that you have in Christ. It becomes a kind of a product of what you and God can achieve together rather than what it is. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
what Christ has done for you completely. The fact is, you see, we cannot bring ourselves to God, but Christ, having substituted himself in our place, has brought us to the Father, cleaned us, made us right with him, justified, holy at peace because of the cross. Which leaves us then, I suppose, with this question, well then, if that's not what it means, what does unworthy mean here? In verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Well, you know, this is the only time, as it happens, that this particular word in Greek occurs in the Bible. It's absolutely unique. David Garland says this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. The word refers to something that, quote, does not square with the character or nature of another thing. In other words, to participate in communion in an unworthy manner means to take it in such a way as to make it a contradiction of what Christ has made the communion meal to be. To do so is to arrogantly and dangerously make ourselves responsible for his body and blood. I was imagining the story of King Arthur. Arthur pulling the sword from the stone by his own person and efforts, doing what no one else can do and so be proclaimed truly king. It's a, it's a Western myth of epic proportions. But it's not so far from what Paul sees in the Corinthians. In their arrogance, in the special treatment of their approved people who were above the rest. And he's saying this is how we take communion unworthily when we pretend it's about what we should think it should be about. This is how we take communion unworthily, when we pretend that we can separate how we take from communion from who we take communion with. This is how we take communion unworthily, when we take the bread and cup, receiving Christ's forgiveness, but retain that forgiveness towards others. We restrict it from being given to them and withhold vengeance or keep a record of wrongs. Thus, Paul says, verse 29, someone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, meaning they take communion but not paying regard for Christ's church, well, such a person is putting themselves at odds with the very God whose death they are proclaiming. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Paul's not talking about people somehow earning God's grace. He's made it quite clear already there's no chance of any of us ever doing that. It's a gift. He's talking about not extending that grace that we have received to others in the body. That's why Paul says that some in Corinth had fallen asleep. Paul means they have died. Why? Because there's only room for one king on the throne. Only one who has drawn the sword and been pierced by it for the church. So, verse 28, Paul encourages us, it is appropriate for us to examine ourselves. To ask yourself, before you come to communion, have I discerned the church here that Jesus loves? When I look at so-and-so who has upset me, when I look at this other person who has wounded me, when I look at that person who years ago said that and I'm still smarting from it, well, we should not hesitate to confess again and again and again 
our sin and confess perhaps to that person and to receive the joy of our salvation. And in the process, as we confess our sins, Brian Chappell says this, if we faithfully confess our sin and then sin again, we should not hesitate to confess again and again and again until our souls sicken of what it is, whatever it is coming between us and the God who never sickens of us coming to him. So communion is an opportunity to recognize the church and the Lord who has made us one in this great meal that we share together, proclaiming the grace that he has showered upon us that we also are to share with each other. That's the offer on the table. Let's pray as we come to communion.